0: I'm Beck and
1: I'm Khadija.
0: We're members
1: of the Stratford Festival Acting Company and we are proud, happy, excited to bring you the Everyday Forum podcast, a Stratfest at Home original, showcasing thought-provoking discussions from the Stratford Festival's Me and Forum.
0: The Stratford Festival's Me and Forum is like a mini festival within the festival, designed to enhance and inform your experience through compelling discussions, exciting performances, and enlightening interactive multi-sensory events and
1: workshops. Each episode will tell you who we're hearing from. The themes of the episode's featured forum event. And we'll also share some helpful definitions with you. We are here with a curated list of events from the 2023 season, bringing the stage to your home through this podcast.
0: We're here to provide contextual
1: insight. And to connect the conversation to wherever you might be. Or where you might be headed. Thank you so much for listening. We're glad you chose. We're
0: thrilled to facilitate this fusion of minds. Enjoy. I was walking and then uh, I was doing my lake walk. And then I realized I was borderline jogging. (laughs) Because it was so the two of them go back, they start going back and forth kind of quickly. Mm. And the pace of the conversation picked up my pace. And then I was like,
1: girl, you have to sit down. You have so many questions. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had a piece of paper and a pen. Yeah, this is a great one. It reminded me of being in so many similar to the last chat. This reminded me of so many moments in rehearsals over the over the course of my career, especially over the last few years working on translated text. And, you know, they talk about this long tradition of African writing in African languages that supersedes the English language mm-hmm. and the fact that there are so many exciting pieces of literature out there that we as English speakers don't have access to because there is in the West less incentive towards translating those texts, mm. especially for a larger Consumption,
0: and I think we forget too what texts are not originally in English. Totally, Remember when we were having that conversation about the cherry orchard, mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. and you think, what do you think you're reading? <laughs> um, and this idea that if there aren't people who sit with themselves, use their talent that has become skill, and decide to tell these stories, then they're to- then they're lost, and mm-hmm. we never we never hear them. Mm-hmm. There's examples in this conversation of stories that just wouldn't exist without the necessary journey that is the translation. Mm-hmm. And then there's all of the political intricacies of translation or interpretation. Yeah. And this was something I had to look up was the concept of understanding what is being referred to when we use the word neocolonial. And I think it's really interesting that English is a neocolonial tool in that it's a part of the system, whether it be economical, political or cultural, to put pressure on other countries. Mm-hmm. And I can say that without having an opinion because it's a
1: fact. <laughs> It'll, it Yeah, it, it, it brings up so many great questions um, about how we decide to esteem mm-hmm. certain what
0: gets on yeah put on the pedestal yeah
1: what is classified as classical text
0: okay I think that's a really interesting question to ask yourself before diving into the conversation Khadija
1: who are we listening to well today's chat is moderated by Mateus Iroro Orrero uh, and his guest is the esteemed Dr. Makoma Wangugi and this one feels really intimate and immediate because it's the two of them, right? But also so exciting mm-hmm. and 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 fast paced. <laughs> Doctor uh, especially, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, gets my gets me really excited in this chat. Yeah, uh,
0: and and then I'm gonna go on Amazon and look for some of his murder mystery books.
1: Oh my gosh, it's spooky season, and this is exactly <laughs> what I need in my life right now. Okay, great. Do we jump
2: in? Let's do it. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Gregory McLaughlin. I'm the manager of the MEAN Forum, and we're so pleased to have you joining us uh, here this morning on this beautiful day. Um, this week is Global Theater Week at the Forum. Uh, through a series of events, we're taking a closer look at the idea of language as a vehicle for transmitting knowledge and artistry. As we've gathered here today for this discussion, it's important for us to acknowledge the privilege that it is in gathering, sharing, and learning on this territory. Um, It's important for us to acknowledge the original caretakers of this land and its waterways, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and the Attawandurunk. It's also important to acknowledge that as an organization and as individuals uh, that we still have a lot of work to do um, to be better treaty partners uh, with the indigenous peoples of this land. Um, the theme of this week Centers around language. Uh, in prepping for these events, I had the opportunity to go back and reread uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's uh, 94 Calls to Actions. And one of the things I was struck by is how frequently language is referenced, um, just highlights the importance and significance of language rights. Um, if you haven't read um, the TRC's 94 Calls to Actions, I would encourage you to do so. It's a very brief document. Um, and to give some thought to how you can use your own voice towards reconciliation. Uh, Now to our event at at hand. I will uh, start uh, by introducing our our moderator for today, who will introduce our our guest. Um, uh, Mateus Hiroro-Orero is uh, the Quebec Research Fund Scholar at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, he's interested in black studies, African literatures and cultures, world literatures, and post-colonial theory. He's also a, par- a part-time faculty at Concordia University in Montreal, and affiliated with both the Faculty of Fine Arts, uh, Interdisciplinary Program, and the English department. He has also published multiple journals uh, and book chapters. I'll turn it over now uh, to Mateus and uh, help me welcome him this morning. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm excited to be here to moderate um, this um, session. Uh, I'm going to um, go f- go ahead and introduce uh, our our guest speaker today, uh, Mukoma Wa So Mukoma Wa is professor of literatures in English at Cornell University in Ithaca and the author of many books, including "On Bury Our Dead with Song, The Rise of the African Novel, Politics of Language, Identity and Ownership, Black Star Nairobi, Nairobi It, and two books of poetry, Logotherapy, and Hurling Words at Consciousness. He's the founder of the Safar Kiswahili Prize for African Literature. So welcome, Dr. Mukoma.
4: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah no, Thank you for the warm welcome. Yeah. And of course, to you, Matthias, and also Gregory, and James, and the other organizers. It's, it's a beautiful space. I mean. I think we should actually just be outside walking by the river but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are yeah so thank you
3: <laughs> okay so um without further ado uh, we're going to move right on into the business of the day and um as um, you probably saw in the, the description of the event we're going to start with language language is going to be our point of departure so um uh, our scholar here our guest here has uh, published um, a book a very influential book on language in the context of Africa. And um, one thing that he did in that book was that he tried to revisit the way people think about African writing. So many people, when they think about African writing, they think about African writing in English or African writing in French. And he questions that and says that, what about African African writing in African languages? So that is something very significant. So I'm going to start off by asking him to explain to us the importance of language to him as um, a scholar. So um, how would you sort of like define language and what is the place or why is language so important in the way you think about Africa?
4: Yeah. So for me, the way I begin understanding that question is actually from a personal angle, right? Um, I I was born in the U S uh, but I grew up in Kenya, right? You know, so, and in Kenya, and this we're talking about the 1970s. It's only now I realized uh, that was, what, like seven years after independence, right? You know, so colonialism was right on our heels. But anyway, uh, my brothers would sit me down, and they would have me do this little exercise of saying over and over again, she sells seashells at the seashore, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the red lorry went around the red band. Because in, in our language, in Gekwe, we don't have the, the letter L. It's a little bit like Japanese in that regard so what would happen is if you couldn't pronounce your l's and r's uh you're termed a shrubber, right the person who shrubs and really being termed, termed a shrubber was a badge of shame right um you know that that, that affected your dating life i mean nobody wanted to date a shrubber <laughs> you know that's that's how much premium we had put on english but then of course that would translate into the sort of jobs you get and so on and so forth right so i wanted to to just read you the passage of them trying to teach me that. You know, and then uh, and then I'll try to answer your question. Repeat after me: the red lorry went round the red bend. One of my older brothers, done English pronunciation teacher, would say to me: the red lorry went round the red bend. I would attempt, <laughs> try again. Repeat after me: the red lorry went round the red bend. The red lorry went round the red bend. You know, so it was a mess. <laughs> uh, okay, try this. She sells at the seashore. My brother would move on, bemused, I, I like to think now. Uh, she sells seashells at the seashore. I would fail once again. I don't remember at what age that practice, that practice finally paid off. And I could say she sells seashells at the seashore and the red lorry went around the Red Bend without making a mistake. What we termed shrubbing. We made fun of shrubbers without mercy. There were no adults to defend the shrubbers or to ask us why it mattered so much how one pronounced words in a language that was not their mother tongue. No one bothered to ask what African language we spoke and applaud us if we spoke it well. And all languages have wordplay and tongue twisters, but I doubt any have as high a premium as the ones we put in English. At Tigoni Primary School, every morning we stood outside our classrooms, and a teacher would inspect us for cleanliness. Oh, yeah, so one of the joys was my family is here, my wife and daughter. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah but a few years ago i took them to see the, the primary school where i grew up right and um, <clears throat> you know i don't know to show off you know but on every door and we're talking again this is in limuru kenya right on every classroom door there were something like 12 rules right of which the first one was no vernacular allowed mm-hmm. right and then, of course, you know, pull up your socks, and <laughs> you know, and so on and so forth. So, so in my scholarly work, really, or you know, actually in this book, I'm just trying to answer that simple question of why was I um, a little kid in Lemuru, Kenya, right, practicing she sells seashells at the seashore as if my life depended on it, and indeed, in fact, depend on it. Um, okay, it's, it's if I get too long-winded, just stop me, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, but to answer that question you actually have to go back and look at the growth of English itself, right? So if you look at the growth of English um, in the 1200s, 1300s, it was understood as a vulgar language, a language of peasants, right? The, language, the, the languages that had high premium were French and Latin, right? And it wasn't until somewhere around the 1400s where now the English realizing that they can't have a national identity using somebody else's language, Right. And that's when our English starts being formally used, right, in, in court systems and so on and so forth. Though in some statutes, uh, you could plead your case in English, but the record would be in French, right? <laughs> so, so, so you can follow English that way, right? First, as a Valka language until the 1700s, right? Most of you will have heard of Samuel Johnson's uh, dictionary, English dictionary, right? Or more in of, or in my interest here. Uh, the preface with the english dictionary right because that's why he makes an argument for the, for the need to standardize english right and he says something to the effect of you know uh authors are the i don't know the pride of a, of a language and so on and so forth um anyway so so his job is to standardize english and that's what he does in that dictionary but there's a scholar i said it's going to be a long story right <laughs> but there's a scholar by the name of um Okay, his name has just slipped my mind. Anyway, who who was analyzing the work people, like standardizers of English, the work they were doing, right? And he uses the term uh, that what they wanted to do was to create the English metaphysical empire, right? By that, he meant that people like, uh, I don't know, Thomas Sheridan, Samuel Johnson, for them, they actually looked down upon the physical empire. It was dirty, it was messy. So for them, they were arguing uh, for English becoming the language of the world. Becoming the language of aesthetics, becoming the envy, right, of, of other nations and languages. All right, so that's that's okay. <laughs> okay, that's the English that now comes to Kenya, right? We don't see the English that was, that was vulgar, full of dialects and so on and so forth, inferior, in fact, right? Uh, we have brought now the standardized English, right? But it comes with but it comes with an army, right? It comes with an army a it comes with a colonial army, right? Mm-hmm. And questions of uh, you know you can't the term upward social mobility you can't climb the, that ladder if you you haven't mastered English. In fact, uh, you could be the most brilliant mathematician or physicist, but if you can't write English well, there is no place for you to go, right? So, okay, so so it so it comes with so the, okay it comes with not only English now as standardised, right? Uh, colonization also comes now with the idea that African languages are inferior, right? Um, and consequently, a lot of uh, that generation of Africans who are educated, went to missionary schools and so on and so forth, they also imbibe that inferiority complex, right? And I, I'll, I'll say two more things and then... Okay. so. But if you want to understand the question of language, look at the 1962 Makere Conference, right? Where the conference, in fact, the term for the conference and uh, was... African writers of English expression right and this is where then the argument around african languages and african writing begins because you have the critical obiwali who says that if you are writing in english you are contributing to the english to the english canon right uh but then then you have writers like chinua chebe uh, who then argue that you know that you can use english for decolonization you can be a unifying language and so on and so forth so it's, so it's 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 um It, it's it, for for me it's it's a weird it's a weird struggle right you know because you know I have the longer history of understanding that at some point there's a British dude called Samuel Johnson <laughs> you know who sat down and standardised the English dictionary so precisely so he could get imported or exported as 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 a, as as, yeah, as, as, a, as a language of aesthetics and so on and so forth yeah um, I could go on right because so I could, that's my understanding of it as a scholar right. Uh, and, and of course, as a scholar, you have, you have to ask the question of why we begin African literature uh, with, let's say, Achebe, you know, or that generation of the Makerere writers, right? When we have this long tradition of writing in African languages, you could go to early Amharic literature from the 1200s. You could go to Afro-Arab literature, 500s, right? You could go, and, and in this particular book, I look at uh, early South African writers uh, from the 1880s to somewhere around the 1930s who are writing in African languages and then doing the normal thing. Of getting translated into English or, or other languages, right? Um, so, so that's that's from the scholarly side that we start the African literary clock from the wrong historical period. But now, as a writer, as <laughs> a the writer, then it becomes more painful, right? Because it means that I'm working with a truncated literary imagination, right? Because I don't have access, I don't have access to the early African writing, right? You know, so, either either I, then either I link my imagination to Actually, Shakespeare, right, since we are here, I can, I can throw in Shakespeare, <laughs> you, know, you know, or the English tradition, and then, and then link it to, to the Achebe, my dad, Goge, you know, literary tradition. But meaning that my imagination, then literally, at least from the African imagination side of it, begins in 1960 something or 90. You know what I mean? So, it's, so not having that long, you know, view of the African literary tradition that I, I could take for granted if I wanted to uh,
3: is painful for, for the writer. Yeah, thank you for these uh, wonderful ideas. Um, you sort of like uh, preempted what I wanted to ask next about, um, you know, the language of literature, because you, you've you tried to establish language as one thing, and you've also tried to think about how language as we use it in literature can also articulate various kinds of politics and so on and so forth. And um, I, we, the question also comes up really um, whether language is really something that needs to be written for it to be, um, accepted because I remember, you know, I, I grew up in Nigeria and growing up I heard lots of stories from my from my mom, from my dad, from people around me, you know, stories that legends myths, folk tales and all that mm-hmm. and um, I wonder how these sort of like fit into your definition of the language of literature, the language of writing, really, you know, how would you put these mm-hmm. together?
4: Yeah, so I would say that, and I'm not thinking about this because uh, she, recently, she, she recently just passed away, uh, Professor Meshere Gedai Mogo, right? who was working or works on, on, with, on the concept of orature, right? In other words, or literature, in, 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 in oral literature, right? And she makes the argument that in the same way you can study stylistics. Uh, I don't know, you can study metaphors and symbols, right? You can do the same thing for for orature, right? So there, there, there's that argument, you know, and, uh, and, and, the, and, and, and the orature is there anyway, right? But what we, what we do, at least in my case, when we were growing up, you know, our assignment will be to go interview, you know, our grandmothers or grandparents. You know, so they will tell us these stories. Then we transcribe them in uh, uh, in English, right? It's it, to me, it's a form of intellectual theft, right? And and you no, know, and you can multiply that. You can multiply with with modern day, you know, scholarship where, you know, we will go and extract this knowledge, you know, from people who don't speak English. We will render it in English. And very rarely you'll find somebody who says, "Oh wow, why don't I do like an abridged version of my work, you know, in the language that people are speaking, right?" Um, yeah, but I will say orator, oh, right? But of course, though the premium, the premium is in the written word, right? I, I think that's where the fight is. It's like, there was a time there was a fight in a, amongst African philosophy circles um, in the in the 2000s, right? where the fight where the first question was, is there what is African philosophy? Is there African philosophy? And then those same questions also came about, you know, uh, does it have to be written down? You know, uh, can, can you have communal philosophy? Right. So and, and you ended up with similar arguments where those who, those who are for Western concepts, you know, then say they have to be written down and done by an, by an individual. But this philosopher called Odera Oruka from Kenya, who argued that it could be oral, right? And in, in most villages, at least in, amongst the Luo, you would have one person,
3: one individual, who is known for answering existential questions,
4: right? So, so it, depends on how, it depends on what you're looking for.
3: Yeah, that's, uh, that's really fantastic. So um, one thing I like about um, your work is that you don't just say these things, you know, you actually put them into practice. So in your personal activism, the kind of engagements that you've had, you actually try to, uh, pro, you know, pro, uh, sort of like um, bring African languages to that sort of like equal pedestal. And I am very, very much aware of the Kiswahili Prize, which um, you instituted um, with a colleague. So um, would you mind just saying a little bit about that and how you've used that to sort of like bridge this gap we're talking about? Yeah, so so for me, so we co-founded the
4: um, the, the, the Safar Cornell Israeli Prize for African Literature in 2014 with Dr. Lizzie At that point, she was the uh, director of the Kane Prize, right? And for me, it's 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 been it's it's almost like a front window into all the, the good things and all the good potential things that are, that can come when we use African languages, but then also how poor African languages are, right? Uh, let me give you an example. So even for English literature, people writing in English, uh, I don't think you can name more than 50 publishers on the African continent, right? This is a continent of 55 countries, almost a billion people, right? Uh, li- literary prizes themselves, you can't you can name more than 50. This is in English, right? So then take that model and apply it to, to African languages. Okay, Kiswahili is spoken by about 200 million people, and as of now, we're the only literary prize right, for 200 million people. So in other words, all, all the, and this is how I think of it to myself, all the things we take for granted. So I'm writing in English, and I, and I can find a literary agent, I can find a publisher, if my writing is good, I mean, or even maybe not, if, okay, let's leave the question whether it's good or bad aside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, 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 I know but, but I know I can find, right? Um, with, with African languages, there are no literary agents. I, I don't know of a single uh, literary agent working on, uh, on African languages publishers possibly you can name more than 10 again this is for a billion people right uh, but with that said, though oh yeah so and let me tell you a story so uh, in the first two years or so there was this guy who won right um, he was a Kenyan policeman so and if you know Kenyan policemen then okay I don't know how much Canadian policemen get paid <laughs> or Canadian police get paid but if, if, if you if, if you're a Kenyan policeman in this case you know, in, then you're, you're literally, you're poor, right? So, but he won the praise and then he was telling us his struggles. He had been working on, he had been working on his novel for 20 years, right? So, and, and, that, and, and at that point you have to question, okay, who, who is the real writer? Is it me who can, I can write a thriller, you know? <laughs> you know, I can write a thriller and, you know, I'm sure I'll find a publisher. Or is it this guy who is writing with no hope of getting published until we came along? All right, so so far we have published uh, twenty books. That otherwise wouldn't have have existed without the praise. Um, But I like like I said, African languages are poor, right? So was it an English praise? Um, Money, people would be throwing money at me, right? (laughs) But it's an African language praise. So there's always that struggle, right? Uh, We do have a sponsor. Uh, They're called Safal. So the Safal is a roofing company. So appropriate, actually. Um. Where they spend the, the, the total price itself is is fifteen thousand, but they spend about sixty five thousand dollars total, right, on their part. So here, then, then here I am now uh, going to Cornell and saying, hey, you know, you know, I I run this prize where we have had presidents be guests of honors in Tanzania, chief justices be guests of honors in uh, in Kenya when we're doing the award ceremonies. Can you guys give me some money? <laughs> you know, and they look at me as if I don't know. It, it, because it, it doesn't it doesn't translate right you know because it's it's in a it's in an african language so i would say it's it's a place of innovation right in fact one one of the things i argue now as a scholar is why don't we use African literary concepts to read african li- literature right why do we have to go to hybridity uh i don't know marxism i'm I'm, I'm on the left so don't judge me on that it's just an example <laughs> um you know, if you take a question of like Ituyeka in Yekoyo, right? Ituyeka is a philosophy of where young people uh, could invoke Ituyeka if things had gotten so bad and the elders weren't able to, you know, they, okay, they weren't leading the society well. That's how you end up with the Mau Mau, the Kenya, Kenya Land and Freedom Army. It was the young people who invoked Ituyeka, right? Okay, so if I'm reading Gog as a grain of wheat, am I better off taking, going to find a Western term, right, to read that literature? Or does it make more? Does it make more sense to use this already this concept that's already in the culture to read that literature? Anyway, there was a time I made that that that, that, that comment at, a, at an African Literature Association conference, and people just laughed, like it sounded so so outlandish, you know. But anyway, yeah. So so anyway, opportunities for innovation I think are in African languages,
3: but it's also tiring and, uh, and a lot of work. Yeah, thank you. Um, When you were speaking, I was just reminded of the fact that there is a lot of um, sort of like um, differences in terms of positionality when it comes Mm -hmm. to um, African writers and Africans indeed in Africa Mm -hmm. and African writers and Africans in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm happy you mentioned that, um, you know, um, that uh, you uh, you are at Cornell and Mm -hmm. you're instituting this prize um, from that um, position of relative privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So I want you to speak to this issue of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And how it sort of like influences the way you think about Mm -hmm. this thing, you know, this um, language issue Mm -hmm. and writing and politics, Mm -hmm. you know, what what is the place of privilege in all of these?
4: Well, so the the irony, okay, so the the place of privilege, that's a great question actually, right? So the irony is that it's us, even, even, even with our limited resources, you know, writing in English, it's us who are also actively oppose writing in African languages, right? And you you can look at you can you can look across the table. Anybody who, has, who who says English is an African language, not only do they say that, but then they also discredit African languages, right? So and, and for me, I say okay, write in whatever language you want, but don't but 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 don't go to somebody else's uh, writing table, right? And and tell them what to write as well, right? Um. So, but anyway, to give you an example of this privilege, there was a time we were giving the award ceremony uh, in Tanzania. And, uh, you know, we got there with the, with the other organizers uh, in the morning when I was going for breakfast. Uh, I went to the I was passing by the counter, and the person at the counter was like, hey, there, there's somebody who wants to talk to you. So I went. It turned out it was a taxi guy, right? What had, what had happened is this one of the winners uh, had landed in, because uh, we buy the tickets, right? And he had landed in Dar es Salaam, but he couldn't afford—I don't know—the five dollars, you know, or maybe less, uh, from the airport to the hotel. Now, and this is when this is when I started thinking about that. This sort of privilege It never in my life would have occurred to me that somebody wouldn't have five dollars for a taxi, right? It, it, it literally—that <laughs> was the last thing I expected to hear. So, 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 and I, and I think that's a good example of of how you know the privilege comes in now. There are some costs as well, I think, um, because now what I'm observing uh, is there's there's a growing divide between continental-based African writers, you know, and us who are in the West, precisely because we have more resources. You know, I was just in Kenya, you know, <laughs> for three weeks. How many of them can afford to come and, you know, and just chill, right? Uh, so, so all, all these are questions we need to ask, but also even in terms of our uh, scholarly organizations right so for example the african studies association you know has a large membership they have money right the african association the african studies association of africa right uh, they don't have that privilege but also think of it this way who owns the name african uh, you know african studies association is northern based mostly white scholars right so it's the Africans then who have to go and append. I don't know if this is making sense. So it's, it's the Africans who have to say, oh yeah, we are the African Studies Association of Africa. right? It should be the other way around. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so so, so so definitely the question of privilege. Um, and it, it, it comes in all sorts of ways, white privilege, uh, our own privileges as scholars based in the West, and so on and so forth. And of course, class as well, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a class dimension to it as well that is there. Yeah, these are very fantastic um, responses. And uh, you'll be talking a lot about Kenya. You know, you talked about growing up in Kenya. You talked about um, the um, school experience in Kenya. And um, I'm wondering, for someone who hasn't been to Kenya or doesn't know much about Kenya, mm-hmm. and this is you know, a little bit off track, but I think it um, might be relevant in the context of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you um, describe Kenya to someone who has never really been there or doesn't know much about Kenya?
4: Well, first I would say, read my books. (laughs) 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 I mean, (laughs) no, so I was just there, right? I was just there. Um, I I came about to, I I was there, I think I came back to the U.S. about two weeks ago, right? And when I was there, that was the beginning of the, uh, of of the strikes, manda mano, right? You know, because, all right, okay, so just think of Kenya as a new colonial, as a new colonial, as a a typical new colonial state that has, you know, grew repressive until... Uh, the 1990s, right, when the Berlin Wall fell. And this is the craziest thing about international politics. They will affect you at home, right? Anyway, because the Berlin Wall fell, then the U.S. stopped supporting the dictatorship. Then that, that, then that had to change, right? Um, but I call it a democracy without content, right, because of the amount of poverty already in the country, right? So now the elections last year, and there's uh, this guy called William Ruto. Whom, for those of us with a long memory from the 1990s, uh, was responsible for some killings, right? Um, and in fact, in 2007, him and um, and his then running mate Jomo, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta were brought in front of the International Criminal Court on charges of, of crimes against humanity. But then they turned that into a Pan African moment, you <laughs> know. And in fact, they got elected, right, partly on the strength of that. Anyway, so William Ruto now is the president, and. Um, the World Bank or the IMF has instituted through him uh, austerity measures. Right now, okay. So when I was there, the most striking thing for me was going to get petrol. Right with the guy who was driving me around, talking of privilege as well. Uh, and the the gas price, the petrol price was ten thousand Kenya shillings, which is about seventy five dollars. Right. So, but you're talking about a country where half the population lives on less than two dollars a day right so so in other words, if you want to understand Kenya, structurally it cannot work. You can't have that level of poverty and have this level of um, you can not have that level of poverty and then have you know economic policies that are not addressing those structural things right So for me, it was a depressing time because you can tell like you, you, you can tell something's broken, right we anyway, saw so there were some protests that were being led by the opposition, um, which resulted when I was there, um, about six people got killed. And in a scary moment for me and the guy, after, after, after we put the petrol, we wanted to go to Limuru, my hometown. You know, so but we had to drive from Westlands, Nairobi, right? And we drove through this slum area where stones were strewn on the roads. You know, there were some cops. Um, or riot police, you know, huddled together waiting for more trouble, right? But you could just tell, you know, first the roads were emptied, Matatus, no, no public transportation was running and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, it's also a really, a really beautiful country, <laughs> you know, but I would say there's something irretrievably broken. But to me, it makes sense, right? If you, if you start with the question of slavery, slavery was never resolved, right? Questions of colonialism, they were never resolved, right? You know, So I mentioned the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, so for them, precisely that's what they were fighting for—land and freedom. But then the government that took over never honored that, right?
3: So, so, so you're talking about—I call it sentimental exploitations. So that's where we are now. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's really fantastic. Um, when you were just talking about mm-hmm. fuel, now we just, I'm just reminded yeah, about. Yeah,
4: it. yeah, yeah, because it's it's pra- no, it's practical, and then it means once the price for, for fuel goes up, and this is so, if you if you drive a Matatu, right? Uh it means every day you have to have seventy dollars to begin your exactly <laughs> to begin yeah which is an impossible sum for most people, but then also food prices go up like pretty much everything goes up, the cost of living goes up, making it impossible uh for people to survive yeah
3: yeah it's uh it's really intense um that's also the situation in nigeria currently there's the fuel prices are up because they removed the subsidy so mm-hmm. people are people are you know <laughs> they are they are really they are really uh, sort of like feeling the heat as mm-hmm. it were. so it's uh it's uh i can relate definitely with that and um since you mentioned um limuru which is i've not been there but um i, I feel like i've been there because i've read a whole lot about it mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> directly mm-hmm. or indirectly and mm-hmm. uh Um, I also want you to tell us a bit about your kind of writing because um, Mm -hmm. you, your writing is very different, you know, as opposed to other African writers Mm -hmm. who, you know, typically um, write what we can call national narratives, if you put Mm -hmm. it that way, right? You tend to write some thrillers, um, detective Mm -hmm. stories, stories that involve um, police officers from North America and Africa Mm -hmm. teaming up Mm -hmm. and stories that are more transnational, Mm transborder and stuff like that. And I I find it really curious, and I think that uh, people here would want to um, mm-hmm. know um, why you write such stories. You know, why are you fascinated with telling stories that are uh, um, that usually involve, mm-hmm. you know, crime, police, mm-hmm. thrillers, slums, and so on and so forth? Because it's very unique. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. So. So part of
4: it was when when I was growing up, right? You know, and we had, we were taking English classes, right? English literature classes. And most of us would open again. Actually, literally, this is true in the case you'd be reading King Lear in class. But in between, there were these really slim, you know, slim—I don't know—borderline pornographic books, actually, right? So, so, and that's what we'd be reading, and that's what we will be passing around after class, right? Um, but then, but then, after growing up and thinking about that literature, not lot, some of it was, you know, like just popular literature. Um, it occurred to me that. It's actually the popular writers who carried the day's politics after people like my father Goge and Meshere, I mentioned earlier, were exiled and their books banned, right? So they did come with their own brand of popularism or popular writing, but they were the ones who were asking questions about, you know, maybe a guy has gone to to Nairobi to look for work, you know, and then he, he ends up getting corrupted and so on and so forth. So I wanted to pay homage to that. So in fact, Nairobi Heat, I dedicated to I dedicated it to David Milo, who wrote those small pornographic books, <laughs> and, and also Major Mwangi, you know. who... <laughs> but, but but that's the thing that that's that's, a, that's the literature we were reading, you know. <laughs> um, but then also Major Mwangi, who has written more books that you know that touch on the Mau and so on and so forth. But one of my favorite writers is called Walter Mosley. You might know him through. Um, through his famous book, uh, which also turned into a movie, Devil in a Blue Dress. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it features a, a black American detective. It's, it's sometimes I, I think that, that was said in LA, right? Meaning that if you insert a black detective in LA at a time of racial strife, you don't have to work very hard to bring questions of race and class and so on and so forth. So for me, I said I was born in the US, right? Then then I grew up in Kenya till I was 19, you know, and then came back, uh, then came, 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 well, came back to the US at 19. And and the questions of identity, of course, arose immediately, right? Uh, Either friction between me and African Americans, right? Uh, And of course with with racism, with white racism as well. Um, So, but I wanted to find a vehicle to explore those issues. So after reading Water Mosley, I was like, okay, why can't I take a detective, uh, and an, a black American detective, and insert him in Kenya and then see what happens, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, and what happens is some of those issues of race and identity come up. But to answer your question more immediately, I wouldn't have, I don't think, I, I don't think I'd have written a robbery hit if a particular incident hadn't happened. And this was when I lived at U, in, in UW-Madison, Wisconsin. And um, I live next to a football stadium, you know, so, yeah, I never, I, I, I never liked football, so I never went. <laughs> but it would get really noisy, you know, so I would leave and then come back at night. So one night, and I would go to the bars as well, you know, where, where they are less noisy. So one night I came back and I lived on the third floor, right? And on the third floor of that apartment, there was a white woman passed out, uh, dressed in a cheerleader outfit, Right? Uh, so I called a friend of mine, you know, like, what should I do? He was like, nope, whatever you do, call the police, right? Because you don't know where she has been, you know. And, of course, the question of race relations also being <laughs> at the top of it. You know, that's what he was thinking about. So I called the police. Uh, yeah, I called 911 for an ambulance, but in the U.S., the, the, the police come with ambulances. So it happened in this case, the, the first person to arrive was a black American police. So at, at some point, I was just sitting there and looking at this scene, Right, I'm like, here I am, an African. Uh, here's a white woman passed out, uh, and here's an African-American policeman. And that becomes the, that becomes the plot of Nairobi Heat. So in Nairobi Heat is a similar scene, right, where you have an African suspect, uh, an African-American, black American detective. But in this case, the white woman has died. And then for him to solve the case, he has to go to Kenya. So I, I guess it's a confluence of many things. I, I consider it a found novel, because if, if that particular incident hadn't happened, I wouldn't have known how to write how to write it.
3: Yeah, that's really fantastic, and um, it's uh, you're making me think about really the kind of relationships that um, or the kind of the way we might think about the relations between um, Africans in diaspora in North America and African Americans. Um, it's not so much so in Canada per se, um, what we tend to experience more in Canada is the question of where are you originally from, right? That's, um, that's typically the, especially when you have like an accent, where are you originally from? In the Africa, in the American context, which you're very familiar with, um i guess that question might have a lot more implications so um this is me asking you to tell us from your personal experience really or from um you know how how would you frame the kind of relationship that africans in diaspora might have with african americans and with larger society really
4: yeah so so it, 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 i think a bit it comes as a contradiction right because historically you have had a lot of uh, political solidarity between african americans and uh and Africans, especially in the continent. So, to give you an example, you could go back to apartheid South Africa, where where Saul Plager, who wrote Mohudi came to the U.S. Uh, to to raise funds from Black Americans, you know, in, in order to, 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 to in order to to further the struggle against apartheid, right? Um, then, you, when you come to the 1950s, 1960s, you have Malcolm X touring uh, touring the whole of, pretty much the whole of the continent. Um, trying to shore up support, because his, his idea was that um, that one of the ways of putting pressure on the U.S. was by having one or two African governments take the U.S. in front of the United Nations for for violations against humanity. Right. In other words, where Martin Luther King, for him, it was more civil rights within the U.S. Malcolm was trying to internationalize it. And if, if okay, if there's one book I recommend you read besides mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's my Angelou's, uh, My angelus. All, uh, all God's children uh, need traveling shoes, right? Because it, it, it's, it's about her time in Ghana. And in there, she describes uh, Malcolm X, right? So he comes, he visits, you know, he meets with dignitaries and so on and so forth. And he never gets to meet uh, Nkrumah for political reasons, right? But at any rate, when he's leaving, spontaneously you have, uh, you have ambassadors from Cuba, uh, from uh, from Venezuela, I don't know, from Global South countries, just come to escort him back to the airport. You know, when you read that, when you read that passage, you realize there was no way Malcolm X was gonna survive, right? Like like I, I, I would say, of course, I have no of proving this, but I would say the thing that solidified that he must die was him, was that Africa visit, right? Um, so anyway, on this side of solidarity, I can talk about organizations like Trans, Trans, Trans Africa Forum you know, that were very active against apartheid, right? In fact, when Mandela came, he did say that if it wasn't for black Americans, right, apartheid would have taken much longer to fall. So, but that's on the political side. The interpersonal side is one of competition, right? Competition over resources, right? But, okay, okay, over resources, right? Um, Where some black Americans perceive the influx of African, continental Africans, as taking advantage of affirmative action, which they fought for, and so on and so forth. Um, my own my own analysis is that we tend to see each other through the eyes of racism, right? You know, so so one of the incidents that animates my work is when I first got to the U.S. in 1990. I was at a party, you know, standing up by a keg, and and and, and I, you know, and this was my first year, so there was another first year student who was African American who came and asked me, you know, if we live on if we live on trees, right? And we almost fought. Right, And it was what, until there was an older uh, African-American student who came and told us, like, what are you guys doing? You don't know each other. You have just met, right? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, and that you're, you're trying to go to blows. And, and then starting from there, then I started thinking, like, what was it about that meeting, right? Uh, what was it? So anyway, to answer that question, then uh, I started looking at why there's that tension. And one of the major bones of contention is, were Africans responsible? for selling other Africans into slavery, right? Now, um, it's a complicated question, right? But some of the answers I've come across were, OK, back then Africans didn't think of themselves as Africans. You know, they were individual nations, right? So it's, it's, they were not saying, it, it, there was no sense of Pan-Africanism. It wasn't a Pan-African Africa, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. It was an individual nation raiding another nation uh, and taking its slaves to the coast right, uh, to sell. You know, and it was the trade of the dead, and to put it bluntly, right, if you didn't participate, I'm reading a good book now uh, that's talking about that. If, if you didn't participate, then you, then you become weak and you get raided, right? You know, so it became, it became this self-fulfilling thing. But, but what I found, so I, 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 I was in Ghana a few years ago and I went to the slave castles. Um, in fact, one of the places I went to uh, is called Keta. That Maya Angelou references in the book, right? And where she talks about Keta is she, she was there in in the, in the early 1960s. She describes it, she describes it as a melancholic melancholic town, right? And she talks about how how she was welcomed and how people went into into mourning, right? You know, because these are the places where slaves were being taken from, who for generations then have inherited that trauma, right? So when I was in Canada, I was like, yeah, I have to go to Qatar. And indeed, it is, as she described, it's very desolate and melancholic. Most of the young people have left, right? Um, okay. So so I went there. and Yeah, yeah so I, I began to understand slavery as an absolute evil. There's no other way of describing it, right? But I was like, okay, so why can't we say they are suffering on both sides, right? Because, because the areas where the slaves were taken from still suffer from this trauma. And the poverty, inherited poverty, and so on and so forth. So then from Keta, I went to Bristol. I went to Bristol in London, uh, which was a big slave in Port, right? Uh, you, might have, you might have heard of the statue that got toppled, and instead they put, it, they put up a Black Lives Matter activ- activist. I think his name was Calhoun or Colston. Colston. So, okay. The Bristol is pretty much like Stratford, actually. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful, you know, it's, it's a bohemian town, right? You have little pubs and you, know, you, you, you can see where the wealth went, right? And, and there's a good line from uh, Eric Williams in Slavery and Capitalism uh, where he says there isn't a single brick in Liverpool that doesn't have slave blood on it, right? So, so OK, so so, so, so the question of who sold who, Cannot exonerate whiteness as you know as as a as the engine, right? As, as the main driving engine for what then displaces uh, millions and millions of Africans, right? Yeah, and so so that's a book I'm writing now. As you can imagine, it's very depressing actually, <laughs> you know. Um, but but we have to do because because it first it's necessary work, and. Uh, and you'd have to understand, okay, so earlier I was talking with Gregory, you know, about COVID, right? Uh, and what happened to Stratford when COVID hit, right? And you're telling me about the, the economic devastation, right? Because, you know, Stratford depends on people coming to the theaters and so on so and so forth, right? So you'd have to think of slavery along those lines, right? Where every little thing uh, in Bristol depended on slavery, right? From food, I don't know, planks for the ships, nails. Where the slaves would be stored, in in other words, it was an industry, and and that we shouldn't forget that. Yeah,
3: yeah, that is um that's um really as answer. you said yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So um let us um talk more, let's um, try and um, tilt away and talk more about your activism, right? Yeah, because um, some of us here may, uh, may have read that um, you were very central to um, the changing of the English department in Cornell from the Department of English to the Department of Literature Literature in English, I think. And um, I, I just want, that's just an example of the kind of activism that you've been doing. So um, is it possible to just you know, hear you talk about that kind of activism and other kinds of activism that you've been doing to sort of like um, articulate um, your identity and your place as a scholar, as a writer, especially in North America. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, so with the literatures in English, what happened was, um, excuse me, so we had the George Floyd murder, right, and the, and the BLM movement, which gave us an opening then to really talk about race or or, or rather actually... I think it became so blatant to white people, right, that no nobody could say that racism doesn't exist and so on and so forth, which then allowed us then to bring questions of curriculum. What are we learning? Who are we hiring? You know, at some point we had this ridiculous situation in my department where where there was only one African-American professor. The rest of us were continental, right? You know what I mean? You know, so, in, and, 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 and we'd go to meetings and there would be no consciousness of Okay, all black people are not the same. And you you can't say, <laughs> you can't say before you because you have hired three black, you know, three black people from Africa, you you don't need African Americans in the department. Anyway, so but for us it was practical. It was looking at the at the, at the curriculum and saying, we we are not teaching English, right? The, the the literatures now are so diverse. You have Caribbean, you have African, even within African, you can divide it more, right? Um you know, and saying that, uh, yeah, that we are teaching, we are teaching literatures in English, right? We couldn't get rid of English altogether, right? Because the reality is, you know, we are teaching, whether they are translated, uh, we are teaching literature, literatures in English. There, there wasn't a lot of opposition, right? But, but only because the facts on the ground were, you know, then what am I teaching? <laughs> right? Um, so, and, and, and that was a great moment for us as, as a department uh, to, um, to be able to get the departmental name changed. Because for me, of course, it harkens back to my father leading the departmental change name uh, at Nairobi University from, from English department to simply department of literature, right? And you, you have other universities that have done it. University of West Indies did it, I think, in the 1980s. Yeah. So, and then, and then after us, you, you have another few universities, like our neighboring Ithaca College, where they also changed their name to department of literatures in English. Um, now, what I don't know is how how that will translate into, <laughs> into change beyond the symbolic, right? Uh, because as we speak, we already saw few as black colleagues, you know, but three of them might be living, right? So, uh, yeah. But in terms of in terms of for, forms of activism, I, I think working on the Kiswahili praise, right? Um, but I, I don't know if I call it direct political activism, right? But but it, but it's like, but it, but some of this work is necessary because we have to build the structures, right? If we, or, or at the time I use with other people, we have to build the ecosystems, right? We have to build the ecosystems. Otherwise, then, okay. If, you, if you're thinking of activism as revolutionaries, you can't have a revolution without revolutionaries, <laughs> you know. And you can't have revolutionaries if you don't have the structures in place for them, uh, where they can, I don't know, gain their political consciousness, right? Um, okay, so. One of the things that, that, that I, did, I forgot to mention when I was talking about Malcolm X, uh, is that he came to Kenya, right? When he came to Kenya, he met with uh, Pio Gama Pinto, uh, who was a slave, uh, who was a trade unionist, right? Uh, radical trade unionist. And they were killed within four days of each other, right? But when, when, when Malcolm X was in Kenya, he gave speeches at the Kenyan parliament, I haven't been, been able to find. And in fact, even talking with radical Kenyans and telling them, oh, you, you realize Malcolm X was in Kenya. Like that history has been buried, right? So meaning that it's, it's almost like the, the, the language question all over again. Like how can you trace back to, to, to this long history of, of, uh, of, uh, of resistance if it's completely absent, right? So I, I, I do think there is value in highlighting some of these things, you know, because, you know, in the same way you end up with a president who in 1990s was responsible for the youth wingers you know we're going around beating up and killing people he becomes president because that memory isn't there so i would say that perhaps for my generation the most important thing we can do is to recover
3: is to recover that history yeah, that's, uh, that's really fantastic. Um, I'm going to ask um, two more questions before we invite um, members of the audience to actually um, ask their questions. Um, the first one has to do with what you just said now. Um, it's about this idea of erasure and recovering history because it it also speaks to the kind of um, research that I do, right? So um, when someone thinks about, for example, there's a region of Canada that we call the maritime region of Canada, right? And um, there is a lot of um, complex history in that region. Um, there is um, this... Um, writer known as George Eliot Clark, who has, it's a black, black Canadian writer, mm-hmm. who has been doing a lot of work to recover that kind of history of erasure mm-hmm. and all that. And um, what he does really is to recontextualize Canadian history mm-hmm. and um, tries to um, think about how blackness has really been at the center of especially the issue of the maritime region of Canada. And I'm asking this because you mentioned that you were interested in global black studies, right? So um, this is not specific about Canada because I know that you probably uh, you, you Canada is usually um, in the context of global black studies it's an invincible sort of like um, space, as you as you probably know. Uh, people don't um, really focus a lot on the Canadian dimension of the global black studies. So what I'm just really curious about is um, uh, in your work so far, in your research, in your activism, in your writing, you know, um, what um, is so peculiar, what is um, so unique about, you know, your approach to Global Black Studies and, you know, just a general question.
4: Yeah, so, so part of it is it's, it's actually student driven, right? Um, because at some point on campus, there was a division between the, the African students and the Black American students, right? So part of it is just observing and realizing that we need to have a larger conversation about how Black people have been talking to each other for centuries, right? Uh, Which means then you know going to places like Ghana and bringing that history back. Uh, I was in Cuba. I was in Cuba a few months ago, where I met with um, with Afro Cubans. Now, okay, so a lot of people might not know this, but Cuba uh, was in Angola in the in the seventies, right, Uh, fighting against, uh, essentially trying to help the government, the Marxist government there. Uh, because South, South Africa's apartheid government and the U.S. were supporting, uh, I don't know, murderers really on the other side, right? You know, so the Cubans went. Um, before that, they had gone to the Congo, but when they went to the Congo, they couldn't use white Cubans. So, so a lot of the soldiers who went were, you know, to help the Congolese. It didn't work out. <laughs> uh, were black, right? So anyway, anyway just to finish up the story about Cuba yeah so so Cuba so Cuba goes to Angola. I, th- I think the number of estimated dead uh, is something like 30,000. Cubans died uh, fighting for Angola's independence. that eventually led to Namibia becoming free as part of the negotiated settlement between Cuba and um, you know and the apartheid South Africa, right? So, But then, of course, Cuba has its own race issues, right? But, but, but at any rate, I, I think for me, it's, it's draining out some of these connections, you know, like who are, who are the black soldiers in, in, in the Congo, right? Who are the black soldiers who are dying in, uh, in, um, in, in Angola? Um, you know, and, and in fact, Mandela does say that Cuba helped break apartheid's back, quote unquote. Or it broke it broke up at its back, so and then how are these black these black Cubans now living uh, in Cuba, right? You know, I was also in uh, in Jamaica. I went to visit uh, Maroon communities again. Okay. So I, I would say, okay, maybe let me put it this: I would say I'm interested in forms of resistances, right? And 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 how and how for them they were speaking to each other maybe in ways we don't today, right? Because there, there, there was a certain internationalism uh, internationalism, solidarity and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, but but I think of it as networks, right? We have to make, we have to make these historical networks, you know, visible.
3: Okay, yeah, so uh, one last question and then I'm going to read what I have on the cards uh, because um, you, you've been mentioning your father and um, it seems to be a very strong presence in what we've we'll been discussing so far, you've referenced him at least four times already mm-hmm. and um, some of us here may have also read his works and then we know him very well uh, as someone who is very central to the way we might think about African African literature, so mm-hmm. um, and this is more or less a personal question as well, so um, I, is it possible for you to talk about your relation, the kind of relationship you have with your father, and how you sort of like situate yourself in the in the current of what he has been doing and currently still does?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I do have this essay that you can find uh, called um, "What What Does Decolon What Does Decolonizing the Mind Mean Today?" Right, I think it's up on LitHub. Uh, because because in that essay, I'm trying to think about because it's it's you, you have to think in terms of through threads, right? Uh, so my understanding of it is that for his generation, especially the language question, was more philosophical, right? Um, for for my generation as well, for the younger generation, is more practical, right? So, um, in other words, they don't have the same colonial hang-ups. His generation did, or mine did, right? Um, but, you know, but in terms of the more personal aspect of it, you know, he, went, he was forced into exile. first, he was detained by the Kenyatta government, right? And, and that's why I take this history personally, really, right? He was detained by the Kenyatta government in 1977. Um, then when he was released, when Kenyatta died, he was released by Moi, who then became a full-fledged dictator, who then sent, forced him into exile in 1982, so, from 1982 to 1990, when at that point he moved to the US from London, and I came to the US, we hadn't met, right? So, and I've been thinking, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, in terms of the sort of fissures, you know, because we tend to, to to romanticize exile, right? If you go with Edward Said, it's a bad side view, <laughs> right? You know, but they are real human beings at the end of that, right? And I, I, I think it does create fissures in families, uh, mostly because of time right and you know, i i think we should have we should have come to the us and all of us gone into therapy really <laughs> you know what i mean quite frankly you know because the fissures because the fissures are real right so but we try you know we try yeah mm-hmm. but now that i'm but now that i'm getting older you know i can see those fissures becoming uh stronger and stronger mm. yeah. but, but but let me say one last thing though so there was a time when this was in Atlanta when I met the daughter of um, of the district officer who was part of the chain of the chain that led him to jail, right? And she was so apologetic, you know. It's, it's as if she wanted, she wanted me to forgive her, of course, which you know, like, <laughs> it's it's not it's not mine to forgive, right? But that's when I started thinking, at least, at least of all the things that have happened within my family, right? I can never apologize for his actions, you know, and I, and I think that's a great gift. I think that's the greatest gift, actually, a parent, at least in, <laughs> under the circumstances we grew up in, that, that a parent can give their child, yeah.
3: yeah that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for responding to all these questions and for really giving us something, giving us a lot of things to think about, really, and I think that's the point of this kind of forum, to have things to think about. So what I'm going to do now is to turn it over to members of the audience. Um, if you have questions, uh, i know you've written some questions here so i'm going to read some of the questions you've written but if you want to speak up and um you know ask your question in person you know live rather uh, you can just raise your hand and i uh, would um ask you to ask your question um our but, guest
4: but, but before that can i talk about my book okay oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay please
3: <laughs> no, no, be- because because I was, I was,
4: i'm talking about all this other work right yeah. <laughs> You know, that's that's you know, that was depressing to write. In fact, I I I I make the argument half jokingly that writers can get PTSD from writing, right? right? So but but I consider Unbury Are Dead with song like a healing book, right? Uh because it's all about music. There's this general music from Ethiopia called Tizita. You might have heard it when you're coming in. Uh it's very bluesy, you know. And it's, it's a long story, so, but, I, but I want to hear from you guys, so I'll cut it short. But, but anyway, so I, 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 when, when I first had the Tizita, those were the days of tape cassettes. So I, I was at a party, and then I could never find it again until, until, until maybe like five or six years ago, right? When uh, I have an Ethiopian friend who, who, who happened to have written an essay about the Tizita, then I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's the music I've been looking for all these years. So, so, so the novel is about a journalist, uh, who is going around, you know, t- t- trying to understand the tizita? But it so happens that in Nairobi there is uh, there is a competition to see who can sing the best tizita, right? You know, so in, in a in a in a dingy boxing club, right? So he goes to that, and then he follows the journalist back to, to Ethiopia, where now he follows each of the individual stories. But I just wanted to give you a quick taste. Um, yeah, so the competition has has just begun, but then. Of course, in real life, you can't you can't compete to see you can be sacrilegious to compete, you know, to sing the Tezita because it's so personal uh, to Ethiopians. So, so at, at the end, the, the competition fails and the musicians just get on stage and they start jamming. Uh, so I'm just going to read that passage okay, quickly. On stage, the musicians were enjoying themselves too much and they left us behind. And by the time we caught up, it was to find Miriam playing the accordion, looking so slight and bent forward that I worried about her. But she was at it, pulling, ebbing, and letting out a gentle church organ-sounding song, the accordion lungs expanding and contracting gently, breathing in and out layered prayers. She was swaying side to side, dipping in and out, lifting one foot in and out, wading out of the river of this Tizita that has yet had no words. She stomped her feet, ran her right hand against her left on the accordion to create confused, upside-down rainbows of sound. And then a scissor. The silence transfixed the drunkards, gamblers, slammers, and the believers in place. The silence moved from being expectant to bordering on being painful. At the end of that silence, where the pain was turning into relief, the corporal with the masenko came in and bored a long, devilish, trembling bass, low and threatening. But the Taliban man was not going to have us threatened, and his guitar with its clean, uh, thin sound, note for note, came in. Um. Miriam winked at me, this one she said in English, and then she bent her voice low and joined the Masenko. When I dream of happy days, O oh Tizita, wake me so I can find you once again. I fear so much that, you, that you, you two will leave me and I'll forget the pain that carries my love and Tizita, if I forget those I loved, how can I remember who I am? One day I'll be dead and gone, my grave untended, dead of birth and death on my gravestone from centuries past. And only my Tizita will remain. Only you will remain, Tizita. What I fear the most is that I'll forget this pain that carries my love. So and yeah, anyway, it's a good novel, <laughs> 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 you have heard. Eh? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah it is a good novel <laughs> I, I, I actually wanted you to do the reading at the end of the question but oh, I think it's good oh, okay. no it's good it's good that you set the tone okay, yeah. I'm pretty sure that some maybe they'll want to hear a little bit of it more after okay, yeah. after the thing <laughs> so thanks for that uh, alright so uh, if you have uh, like I said before if you have question, like, questions um, you can um, raise your hands if you prefer to ask your questions live you can raise your hands and then we'll give you the platform to ask the question okay
2: What's yes thank question. you I you a lot
4: I wouldn't say it's anger, right? I, I think it's it's desperation, quite frankly, right? Because um just because of the amount of, of poverty, right? Um, you know, and there are no and there are no political outlets for it because the the, the, the opposition, the opposition is essentially is also not addressing those structural issues, right? So for me, I would say that my main feeling uh, was one of, of, of desperation. I wrote an article when I came back for Africa is a country. It's called "Who is Who is hustling?" Who? Because then I'm, I'm, I talk about these things. Um. I don't quite, quite frankly, even when I use when I use up all my political science, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the country is gonna go, right? At least as, as far as Kenya is concerned, just because. Okay, so, and it's the same thing in the U.S., for example, right? In the U.S., uh, 46 million people live under the poverty line. 46 million, that's almost like the whole population of Kenya, right? So what's going to happen with that population? Right? Because you can't, you can't have liberal politics addressing that level of inequality, right? So you can't, in Kenya, you can't have liberal politics addressing these historical inequalities. But with that said, though, uh, maybe desperation and resilience as well. Um, when the 2007 violence broke out, post electoral violence broke out, it wasn't the politicians who stopped the, the what was becoming a civil war, right? It was the people in those same affected communities, right? You know, so it was the women groups and so on and so forth that got together and talked to the people, right? So so you do have these groups that hold the country together, but, or civil, maybe civil society, but we don't talk about those ones, yeah? But, but in terms of revolutionary anger, I, th- I think people are stunned as well, yeah?
3: Mm. okay um i'm going to take one question on the card okay and then also provide the opportunity for people to also ask questions live as well Mm. after that so one card question one live Mm. question Mm. (laughs) (laughs) okay so um i have a question here that says should french as as an example be removed as an official language in former french colonies is it helpful for self-determination in the face of neo-colonialism, I'm just going to add quickly that mm-hmm. um, I think Mali, um, the military junta in Mali, they recently mm-hmm. did just that. But mm-hmm. They removed French as the official language, so there is mm-hmm. um, historical context for this question too. Yeah, so I don't know. For me, I don't think of it as either or, right?
4: What I what I find what I object to is the idea that um, that it's English at the expense. Of, of, uh, of all these other, of, of African languages, and that's where it's been, right? You know, where English is eating up, <laughs> or bullying, if you will, bullying uh, African languages into submission. But, but, but suddenly, I, I, English, okay, I'm talking about English, but I guess we can extend it to French. Um, but some of these languages, they, they're not going anywhere either, right? So uh, in my opinion, I think it's a question of opening up resources, uh, make him, I mean, in fact, it, it, I think people should be doing what South Africa has been doing, which is to have, I don't know, it has like five, six, six or seven or, or so official languages. There's also Kiswahili, which now has been adapted as an official language, I believe, um, in, in more and more countries outside of Eastern Africa, South Africa, for example. I think Malawi as well, right? So so I, I, I think it's seen African languages as spaces of of, of innovation. Um, I think Ghana was the only country to ever have a ministry for Af- for African languages, right? So, but if we see them as a resource, they, they, I, I, I don't see it unless unless Mali changes its economic relationship with France, which I suppose it's trying to do now, but it's a military junta. <laughs> so, so and, and unless unless they're talking about changing that material relationship, uh, I, personally, I don't see French going anywhere. What what is interesting? You can think about Mandarin or Chinese, right? As well, where now you you can take classes in in Chinese in Kenya, right? You know, again because the resources have been put there, and it, it's becoming a language of upward social mobility. And maybe and maybe that's the key to make African African languages viable, where you can get a job teaching uh, an African language, for example, African language literature. Uh, yeah, but it's a tough one. I mean, it, because it's a military junta, right? First, okay, so it, for me, okay, if it was. If 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 it was a truly revolutionary government, right, that's saying, okay, let's let's rethink about Let's let's rethink our relationship with France, you know, and the US and and all these imperial powers. That one I can see, right. But it's usually the people who are making those arguments. It's for quick um, for quick Pan African points, right? You know, so so the current Kenyan government, the, the leader I mentioned, Imruto, you know, gave a talk to France where he was like, yeah, you know, African leaders need to be respected, you know, and he was was well received, but the guy is also busy killing his own people, right? You know, so, (laughs) Uh,
3: yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, Do we have any other life questions before I read the next card? Okay, I'm gonna read the next card. Mm -hmm. Do you see a parallel between the use of the English language as an assimilation tool by colonial powers in Africa And the use of the language to assimilate immigrants in Canada and the US—interesting.
4: So, I mean, so okay. Let me talk about the US, right? Where, where the—I think in California, where every few years you'll get a proposition where that English should be made, you know, the, the 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 official language, right? But in a state where most of the people speak Spanish, right? Um. For, in terms of colonial education, right, and this is interesting, maybe of interest as well, there was this group called the Phelps-Stokes Foundation, right, and they would go do, it. it's the colonial education studies, right, and they released, it. and for them the argument was that uh, that Africans or the colonized don't need, you know, they don't need humanities, so I mean, I'm sure you have a cause of that now in Canada as well, at least in the U.S. it's there, where they don't need humanities, where they need a practical life skills, you know, Uh, At the same time, they came up with this concept of adaptation, right, where they argued that um, because they don't want to shock the African into civilization, what they should do is slowly, uh, in in fact, uh, the the first four years will be in whatever language they are speaking and then slowly uh, get adapted into into English. What is interesting to me about that example, this is the same foundation that also gives uh, the Booker T. Washington Tuskegee uh, sort of educational philosophy of, of of, uh, of 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 learning how to do agricultural work and so on and so forth. They're also the ones who uh, gave uh, the same philosophy for Native American education. So there is that connection. I've never been able to follow it from there. But if you're, if there are scholars here who are interested in that question, they can follow up. In terms of assimilation, so okay, fast for most African immigrants, they want their children to learn English, right? It's 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 always that fallacy of. Uh, they'll come, you know, because it's, it's it's a language of power, right? So, and if, and if they themselves are living uh, their countries with the idea that English is a superior language, it then then coming to the U.S., uh, then that's the language they'll want. Uh, at the same time, those African parents are the ones who argue against their children identifying with uh, with African Americans, right? And, and some I teach a lot of first generation first generation uh, Africans in, in the U.S. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Like I, 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 I would say it might be a question of a willing buyer <laughs> and willing seller, right? Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, in the Canadian context, um, it's a uh, very, very, very obvious because uh, they have this uh, thing called the express entry for for immig- immigration to Canada, and um, you need to have skills, of course, certain skills that the Canadian government would deem valuable, but you also need to write an English exam. They call it um IELTS, and you need to get like a minimum score. And once you get that exam, you have like a lot of points. Mm. Um, and then you can then immigrate. So it's it seems that English is very, very important for you to actually, in, in Canada, for you to immigrate to Canada. And in Quebec, French, of course, Quebec French is very, very important. In fact, so important that even after you may um, have re- taken the French exam to immigrate, when you land, you still sometimes have to go through the French school, the French, because the government pays mm. oh. you to, uh, to learn more French. So it's. Um, it's very central to how the immigration system works in Canada, and I think that's why the person who has the question used the word assimilates. Oh, yeah, okay. It's
4: a- it's, so, okay. Let me, let me let me say, I haven't thought about that in in the U.S. context, right? But but there was a time uh, we were invited with my dad uh, to go and visit Seattle by the Kenyan Youth Association there. You know, most of them are first generation uh, Kenyans in the U.S. Because there was in the letter they say that. Um, you know that they're getting lost, they're doing drugs, they're not going to school, and so on and so forth. So we went to, to talk with them. You know, and, and one of the things that became apparent was the issue of language, right? Because okay, there, there are two issues here. One, uh, their parents don't want them to learn their, 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 their mother tongues, right? Uh, meaning that then they're growing up in a country where, where they are black, but they can't account. They can't account for where they come from, right? So it's a sort of weird existential place for them to be. You know, at the same time as I mentioned, you know, they, they are not being allowed to interact with Black Americans, who at least, you know, understand the language of racism, you know, and and and, and where they will be more symbiotic, right? So, but they also practical uh, considerations because they also it's it's also really expensive, you know, to send your kid back, you know, to you know to go spend a few months, you know. Um, so, so anyway, so the language question will will appear in all forms, I think.
3: Yeah. So. As we way way to think about it, it appears <laughs> in all forms. Okay, so the next question here is, um, having worked in Ethiopia, where there are dozens of languages, just like Nigeria as well, I wonder how you address that multiplicity to advance African writing?
4: No, I mean, it's tough. In Kenya, we have 42 languages, right? And in fact, when we when we started the Kiswahili Prize, we were naive. We thought, well, we will rotate the price, um every year, right? but then of course immediately we run into into the the, the ecosystem the, the absence of an ecosystem right questions of publishers literary agents and so on and so forth and i don't know and i, I don't know if um unless, unless african governments invest you know invest money in african languages the writers can only do so much right you know so i can do the kiswahili praise but, I, but, but, but as i mentioned it's a language spoken by over 200 million people. So the, the one literary prize really doesn't change the equation, right? Um, so I would say if we want to see real change when it comes to the viability of African languages, not just as languages of culture, right, but also languages of commerce and so on and so forth, the government should invest money. And, and, most, and most Kenyans or well, most Africans will speak four or five languages, right? You know what I mean? Like, so so instead, of, instead of hurting everybody into English, why not? You know why why not invest money uh in you know in fact even creating theories about multilingualism in an african context you know and 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 create jobs from that and so on and so forth but at any rate we need at some point the government has to intervene
3: yeah that's uh, that's interesting and i i find that point very curious because like nice because currently as we speak there is a um a diplomatic um sort of like um, mission there are some nigerian diplomats are currently in ottawa and they are trying to learn from canadian canada's multilingual um no sorry multiculturalism policy on how best to navigate different languages and different cultures i found it funny that you know that um they use multiculturalism as a model for multilingualism, but yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it might be worth mentioning. So when I was in Ethiopia, this was uh, before, the, before the war, of course, right, uh, in the Tigray region. Um, I, I went to buy it. Uh, my Ethiopian friend uh, took me and, and another friend to go buy paintings, right? And where we were, it, it was on a high-rise building, you know, and, we, and and my friend pointed out that the people we see working on the fields uh, are the aroma of people who have been forced to industrialize, right? Um for me when it comes to different nations within a nation, I'm with Lenin, right? Uh in his essay, the question of nationalities, which is you, you can't force a people, right? You can't force a people to you can't force a people into a nation, right? But you but you can have, I don't know, referendums, you can where then they decide, right? Um our insistence on colonial borders is a problem. For example, Somalia is divided into, I think, five different African countries, right? You know, so Myself, I don't see, I don't see the problem about, about their, their call for a greater Somalia, right? But there is the there is the idea of the national borders as as, as being permanent. But I do think a
3: people should be should be allowed to decide whether they want to be part of a nation or not. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, totally agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next question here is: um, Does a language which has no written form or orthography change once writing is invented? Does it change the stories and proverbs? How mm-hmm. people hear the stories?
4: Okay, that okay, that's interesting, right? Okay, so but but the first question would be when okay, when the stories are written, in what language are they being written in? Right? So if I'm writing an oral story from from Gekoyo, right, and I and I and I write it down, um well, okay, fine. I, 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 okay, I can see some differences, right? You know, because some some of these stories are supposed to be performed, right? Going back to orature, right? So, like with the stories, there is a question of our call and uh, call and response, the use of song, and so on and so forth. Which, which then, when you are reading, you'll be then you are just reading it. Um, but I, I would I wouldn't see it as a loss either, right? You know, because the oral form stays as well, right? So, so maybe the question is is us privileging. Um, Privilege in the written uh, over orature, right? Um, But 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 I but I think anytime you move one medium to another, there will be losses as well, right? I mean that's the essence of translation as well. So so I guess the question is then, um, is moving from orature to the literary, right? Is it a form of translation, right? In which case, then you then you can think of if you put it that way, then you can think in terms of. um, of what are the gains and what are the losses? Um, but 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 not, not, not to be funny, but I I I I I, I, I wish that's the question we were asking, like looking at all the literature written in African languages, you know. <laughs> I wish we were looking at that and saying, oh, you know, when my grandmother would tell me this story, you know, the, the where is the song, where is the dance, where is the call and response? Well, you know, once it's written. Yeah
3: and now that you've mentioned translation i think it's also some it's 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 crossed skip my mind actually earlier because um they um your project really in thinking about um uh, african L- african literature through the lens of language and african languages necessarily and that's the does one way i see it necessarily entails translation because africa is very multilingual um there are regions that are much more luckier in terms of having this language that can foster some sort of like you know regional um, communication, like Swahili, for example, in the case of East Africa. In West Africa, um, we don't have that. As in the Nigerian context, there is no there is no such regional language that can really foster a kind of like even in, you know intranational communication beyond English. So um, translation is, becomes very key, becomes very essential to the kind of um, things you're thinking about. So um, what? Because there's a lot of things that go into translation. There's a lot of politics involved in translation as well. Mm. So this is just to add to the question. You know, mm. how do you see the project of translation in what you do? No, I would say translation is the single most important thing we can
4: do when it comes to languages, right? And I agree with those who have argued that translation is where languages meet as equals, right? Um, there, there was a good project done by Jalada, you can look this up, J-A-L-D-A, where they took a short story written by Goge, originally written in Gekoyo. Uh, Goge himself translated into English. And then now it exists. I think the most translated African short story in in, in in our literary history, you know. So so and now it's been translated into I think over one hundred languages, right? A, 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 a majority of them African. So thinking about that project, you can ask, you can think about translation in three ways, right? Uh, translating from English in this case into into African languages, or translating from African languages into English. But 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 the, but the one area people haven't really talked about is translating between. African languages, right? And, and and when I talk about these issues in universities, I always tell the younger scholars, look, imagine the amount of okay, okay, how how how, my, how, okay, how much how literary trans- translation theory can you mine, you know, from thinking just about English, right? But how much more you'd gain if you're looking at African at translation between African languages, right? Uh, because because there's some questions that that are that are important, right? One is if I'm translating Uh, Something written in lesser is a cosa into Yekoyo. I really don't have to explain colonialism. Okay, Nabokov. Nabokov said that um, that he translates with a. I think he said a mountain of footnotes, right? But but if you're if you're trying to if you're translating between cultures that are mutually politically intelligible to each other, then you don't need all those footnotes. There's a question of sound systems, right? uh you know where if you're translating between bantu languages you don't have to labor right you know to beat beat the other language to carry the original sounds and so on and so forth so i would would say yeah, translation we can think about in in it we can think about it in those three ways but but i I think the most rewarding would be looking at translating between african languages oh yeah and 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 also the Goya example is a good one right you know where english becomes a vehicle right you know so it becomes a vehicle um it doesn't overpower all these these other languages because first written in Gekoyo then translated into English and then everybody else was moving from the the English translation, right? So I, I think ultimately it's a question of how we want to view African languages. Or if you go to the Oxford English Dictionary and you look at the words we use to describe African languages, vernacular, right? Who speaks vernacular? <laughs> okay, but but it's, so but, but anyway, when you look at all those words, uh, vernacular, ethnic, and, you, you, and and others as well, you will find they have two, they have two meanings, right? One is what it's intended vernacular; it's a language that's grown off place, right? But then they have other vernacular. I, I think I think even the OED does say vernacular is no longer used, or it does carry it does carry, for, for lack of a better word, ratio slurs, right? Uh, ethnic, okay, as we understand it, it's the people from different ethnicities, but, but, it, but it's also double meaning is of slaves or heathen, right? So, so even when we think we are doing well by, by, by referring to African languages as ethnic or vernacular or local, right? First, if you call, if you call Kiswahili local, what makes a language international? In case, international is international. It's spoken in uh, in six or seven different African countries. So if the if the language is being spoken within Africa, it's no longer international, right? So so I, I think part of it is like we have to give a philosophical concession uh, to African languages, right? Um, in or tribal tribal languages, right? You know, for example, I joke with my students and I tell them, look, if you told your parents, you know. You know, my professor is like a tribesman, right? Like what, like what, 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 you know, what's the image that will come immediately, right? You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, so yeah. So we need governmental intervention. We need. We need. Um, you know, we need writers to intervene, but also we need a philosophical, uh, philosophical concessions. By by simply saying, or in the same way we say all all human beings are equal, though of course we know some oppress others, right? (laughs) I I think we can also say all languages are equal and and just move from there.
3: Yeah, interesting. The last question I have here on the card um, also has to do with translation. So, um, and the question says, if you want the wider world to learn and appreciate African ideas and philosophy, then um, its literature needs to be translated into English or other languages. Is that so bad?
4: No, not, not at all, not at all. and I hope I've not been misunderstood. I mean, I'm speaking to you in English.
3: <laughs> so,
4: so so even even at a practical level, I read you I read to you your book in English, right? So 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 even at a practical level, you know, um, no, okay, so certainly, and, and one of the things we would like to do is to have, you know, if, if we had money for it, it would be to have our twenty winners, you know, their books are in Kiswahili, to get them translated into okay, other African languages. Into European languages, into into any languages, actually, right? You know, my own books have been translated into French uh, and Turkish, right? Um, so no, is, no, translation is not the enemy. The translation can never be the enemy. It's just the value we are putting on different languages. Okay, so okay, it, it, okay, what makes and this this, this this are debates now in literary circles in world literature circles, right? Where um. You know, it's world literature if it exists in English or French, right? But what makes it not world literature if it exists in Kiswahili, you know, or 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 even a language spoken by two people, right? Um, What like, like, okay, what makes world literature world literature, right? And can we talk about world literature in waiting, right? You know, because the books in Kiswahili at some point will get translated into into other languages. Um, so I would, I would say absolutely not. Translation is not the enemy, not at all.
3: Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, thank you so much for answering these fantastic questions and uh, for being with us. Uh, I'm going to invite um, Gregory to um, make uh, the closing remark before we call it a day. Uh,
2: first of all, uh, if you can join me in thanking these two gentlemen for speaking <today>.
4: Oh yeah, so yeah, and, and, and thank you, and, and, and thank you for the conversation. It actually got me thinking, I, you know.
3: <laughs> you know so, yeah,
4: yeah. So I yeah, have some, what are they called, thoughts, things to think about, and also for the great questions as well, and for your being here.
1: Okay, I, I, mm-hmm. I officially have to start reading all of Dr. Makoma Wangugi's books now, and first on the list <laughs> is Black Star Nairobi. What's the first on my list? Nairobi Heat. Yes. <laughs>
0: I think that one, I want to read these because they're they sound massively entertaining, and it's a version of of story coming together that I probably haven't been exposed to. Um, and I love that I love thinking about who tells the story using whose voice. I remember having a conversation in my undergrad about permission and and less so about casting, but really, who can tell what story, whether that be oral literary, but this idea of, juxtaposing contrasting story and voice and what happens when when those two come together a bit risky but neat Mm
1: -hmm. I think it's also risky when writers who are writing in their native language Mm -hmm. when that language is not English Mm -hmm. when they decide that they are going to put their work out into the ether Mm -hmm. have it you know translated to English and bring the story that was crafted in their native tongue mm-hmm. to the world and to put it up against other bodies of uh, of English literature giant yeah. bodies huge
0: giant pedestaled bodies of text
1: the moderator matea says in this chat translation is where languages meet as equals and that is so it's such an empowering idea to me because it's true You know, these stories do hold their own weight and power, and I think it's so exciting that they can stand in that power within the literary stratosphere.
0: It makes me think about how lucky we are that this conversation is in the language that we speak
1: and the language that this podcast is in. Truly, I think someone even mentions it mentions that something to where mm-hmm. there's a question in the chat mm-hmm. where someone asks something along the lines of whether we should not be translating things into English or whatnot. And mm-hmm. and, when, and I, I, the response is, well, you know, I'm speaking to you in English right now. So we understand that English has a global power. So rather than fighting against that power, let's bring the stories into that Uh, change the shape from the inside totally
0: i'm obsessed with this image of the school children doing their she (laughs) (laughs) sells sea shells by the (laughs) seashore which i did a lot
1: as a kid and with my list i did that this morning
0: Before, (laughs) (laughs) similar are the hallways here sometimes folks practicing their rp Mm -hmm. it really made me go what's on top and why yeah I think these conversations invite us to consider why. And I look forward to our listeners asking themselves those questions. Mm Want to come over and order books? Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go buy
1: some books. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. This event was recorded as part of the Me and Forum in front of a live audience in Lazaridis Hall at the Tom Patterson Theatre in Stratford, Canada.
0: Be sure to subscribe to keep up with the rich mind of theatrical content housed by the Stratford Festival
1: streaming service, Stratfest at Home. It takes you, our listeners, to make this possible. It also takes the help of our dear collaborators. Support for the Meehan Forum is generously provided by Kelly and Michael Meehan and the T.R. Meehan Family Foundation.
0: Music for the Everyday Forum podcast is provided by Hillary Adams. Production support
1: by Jenna Dixon, Yash Chabria, and Chris Von Kleist. The Mean Forum is produced by Julie Miles with help from Gregory McLaughlin, Mira Henderson, James Hyatt, Danielle Walcott, and Renata Hansen. Special thanks to Anthony Cimolino,
0: Anita Gaffney, Michael Adams, Jennifer Lee, Greg Doherty, Michael Duncan, and Kendalyn Bishop. Adieu, adieu, adieu. <laughs>